There's a picture I saw a little while ago that someone had posted on their uh, Instagram. It's from a, a pretty famous uh, site, a popular tourist attraction. This is in Bali. Uh, that, that location is called the Gates of Heaven. It's great, isn't it? You can see there's a, a mountain back here in the backgrounds, those clouds there. Uh, it's just a, a beautiful, beautiful scene. But the person who posted it, she wrote something along the lines of, I just don't believe anything anymore. Because right next to this photo, she posted this photo. This is that other photo being taken. And it might be hard to tell, but what this gentleman has here on his cell phone with which he's taking the picture is a mirror, like a sheet of glass. And so that, there's no water there. That doesn't really look like that. That looks more like that. There is a mud puddle there. <laughs> this is somebody else that took a similar picture. He said, this is what it really looks like. Here's the same uh, individual. He took a picture from higher up. There's no water here. And yet, this beautiful photo was posted. This very serene photo with a reflecting pool that doesn't exist, and the person who posted it said, I just, you can't believe anything you see anymore, can you? It's all fake. It's not real. I want you to grab your Bibles uh, this morning and turn to the book of Matthew. Go to Matthew chapter 23, 24. I'm going to start in the end of 23. As you turn there, let's just uh, open together in prayer. Our Father God, we pray that you would open your word to us this morning. You would speak to us. We recognize this as your words to us, and God, we want to hear them well. So we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will open our, our minds and our hearts and help us to get out of this what you would have us to get today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We've looked at a number of passages over a number of weeks uh, as Jesus has been interacting uh, with these religious leaders of his time, mostly. Um, it, it, some of you who are worried, I see the open pit on the stage. I'm going to try really hard not to step in it. So don't, don't. I do know that it's there. I know some of you are freaking out a little. Um, but Jesus has been interacting with some of these religious leaders. And, and he has... <laughs> Thanks, Elliot. Ladies and gentlemen, Elliot Jennings. <laughs> Who knew we had roadies at Berean Bible Church? <laughs> um, Jesus has interacted with these individuals, and they've, they've very explicitly, you know, we're told that they've been trying to trip him up. They've been trying to uh, catch him in some way so that they can embarrass him, so that they can uh, take away his influence and his authority, uh, at least in the minds of the people with whom he is so very popular. And it hasn't worked. And he continues to challenge them. And he continues to quiet them. And on the heels of kind of all of that, these, these numbers of conversations that we've been looking at, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 27, I'm sorry, 37, excuse me. Jesus says this, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen 
gathers her brood under her wings, yet you were not willing. He paints this just beautiful, touching picture of a, a mama bird, you know, that would just sort of gather those chicks under her wings and, and guard them and protect them. And he just says, oh, Jerusalem. I mean, he's grieving here. How often I've just wanted to gather you like this, to protect you, to have you just right here, but you're, you weren't willing. You know, this city that, that kills the prophets, that stones the, the people that, that I've sent to you, you know. And so he says in verse 38, See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, some of the people in, the, in his hearing, some of the people even that weren't in his hearing, they will see him, but we're going to kind of get around to the fact that there's something extremely significant going on here. I think it's a lot more significant that we see maybe on the surface of it, in fact. But he says, your house is left desolate. You know what desolate means. I think it's like empty. It's uninhabited. And when we wonder what the house is to which he's referring, you might have a number of answers in mind, but but again, I, I think as we look into this and really dig into this, we're going to see something here. But verse 1 of chapter 24 then says, Jesus left the temple, and he was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, and in Mark's telling of this account, uh, Mark sort of adds that they say, hey, look at the wonderful stones and the wonderful buildings. <laughs> I... Part of me really loves this. I mean, there's a real sense of civic pride here. By all accounts, this temple, the temple that Herod had built, was incredibly beautiful. It was a, a, a massive structure and, and an, a very beautiful structure. No cost had, had been, had, had been uh, uh, overlooked. I mean, they just, it was amazing, a feat of engineering and of artistry. And yet, it's not as if Jesus is a tourist who's visiting from France and he's never seen this place before. I'm not really sure what it is that makes them today stop and say, look at that place. And maybe it was just the specific time of day and the sun was just in the right part of the sky where some of the, the, the parts of the building that were gilt in gold, you know, was just catching the glints of the sun just right I don't know, but they just stop and they say, look, Lord, look how beautiful it is. Look at these wonderful stones, these wonderful buildings. And they say buildings, plural, because there was the temple itself, but there was this whole courtyard and this whole temple complex. There were multiple buildings even that were part of this entire complex, and it's all just so beautiful. And as they're leaving the temple, the disciples point out, look at this. And Jesus answered them, you see all these, right? You see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. <laughs> That's a hard teaching. 
That's a hard thing to say to these guys that are just swelling with civic pride right now and just struck by the beauty of this place. He says, I'll tell you something. There's this time coming. Not one of these stones is going to be left. You see those wonderful stones, beautiful stones? They're all going to be thrown down. And most people agree that he is very likely prophesying. He's looking forward to uh, the year 70 AD when, in fact, the whole temple was wrecked. The Romans came in, they'd had enough, and they just wrecked the whole place. I think there's something perhaps a little bit deeper going on here. Verse 3 says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives. So just to remind you, uh, the Mount of Olives is to the east of Jerusalem. If you left that eastern gate that was right where the temple is, if you left that eastern gate of Jerusalem, you would go down into a valley, down into the, the, the Kidron Valley, and then back up the other side and come up to the Mount of Olives. And so you could look across this valley from the Mount of Olives if you looked west and see that same temple courtyard. And so they walk as they leave the temple and they walk down through this valley and back up and they're on the Mount of Olives now. And the disciples now came to him privately. So there was, you know, sort of a larger group before. But now they came to him privately and they say, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus has talked about things like this. In fact, he's pretty explicitly predicted his own death, but he's also told them that he'll come back. And so now, as he has just left the temple courtyard, and they've pointed it out, and he said, listen, not one of those stones is going to be left on top of another And so they say, when is this going to happen? But they also say, when will be the end of the age? The end of this time. This is, uh, I was going to say symbolic. It's not really symbolic. It's sort of code language, understood language for the day of the Lord even. This reckoning that had been promised to come. This time of judgment even. But that after this time of judgment that had been prophesied, that Jesus would come back, that he would return. And and this is what they're asking. When are these things going to happen? How are we going to know? What will the signs be? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ, and they'll lead many astray. And we're going to kind of trail off there because now there's a very extended passage where Jesus talks about a number of signs. And I want to suggest that they have everything to do with Israel's prophetic timeline. They have to do with things that, in large part, haven't yet happened because of a number of other things that did happen. But he gives them some of these signs and some of these things that will happen. But I don't think that's what's so significant about this event, this leaving. Because Jesus leaves the temple. He's been in and out of there. He's had a number of conversations. But on this day, there's something really important going on. And as he, li- he leaves, he grieves as he does so. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, see your house? It's left desolate. I think that the significance of this has everything to do with something that happens a long time before in the book of Ezekiel. If you want to turn to Ezekiel, 
If you have trouble finding Ezekiel, your Bible very likely has a table of contents, which works just like a table of contents in any other book. You can use that if you need. Otherwise, if you don't have a lot of reference notes in the back of your Bible, most of us, if you open your Bible just right to the middle, you'll fall into Psalms. Put you kind of in the section of poetry. If you turn past that section of poetry, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then Song of Solomon, then you get into the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and then Ezekiel. So that'll kind of get you in the neighborhood. But Ezekiel chapter 9, and, and before we, we really look at a, a few verses, and we're not going to read this whole extended section but just to give you a little bit of background on Ezekiel, who he was, when he prophesied, uh, we've talked before, I think, about the division of the kingdom of Israel. At one point, they were unified. Then they had a civil war, and they divided. There was a northern kingdom that was then called Israel, and a southern kingdom that was thereafter called Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel had already been defeated sometime earlier by the nation of Assyria and taken away. The southern kingdom of Judah during the time that Ezekiel prophesied, is sort of in the process of being conquered. A new empire rose. They were called the Babylonians. And the Babylonians came in, and they took over Jerusalem. And they, they took the king captive, and they took the, the upper crust of society, all of the ruling class away, and they took them back to Babylon. And many of those people were treated very well in Babylon, but by taking them out of their land, their idea was this will sort of gentle these people. It'll calm them all down, you know. We'll take their leadership away, and then they'll be subservient to us. They'd done it a number of times to a number of other nations. It worked pretty well. It didn't work that great for the Israelites. They rebelled. They didn't behave like they were supposed to. And so the Babylonians came in a second time to Jerusalem. And they took away more people. They sort of carried away an entire middle class of individuals that were there in Judah. And it's probably among those people that included Ezekiel. And so while Ezekiel writes this book, while he's recording these prophecies, he's living in Babylon. He's not actually in Jerusalem. And yet God gives him this series of visions where he kind of gets this front row seat to what either is or is about to happen in Jerusalem. And the whole first section of this book of Ezekiel is all about God's judgment against this nation that for centuries now has continued to disobey him. He's been so incredibly patient with them. But it has gotten to the point when we, this, this section that we're going to look at here in Ezekiel, when not only are they practicing idolatry, they're practicing idolatry in his temple. Right there, they're doing it. I mean, what could be more brazen? And God is in the process of telling them through Ezekiel, your judgment is here. I mean, you're done. And this would happen ultimately when the Babylonians would come back to Jerusalem a third time and just burn the place to the ground and say, this, if none of the other things work, this will work. We'll show you. <laughs> but God tells them, listen, I'm using the Babylonians as part of my punishment because you refuse to listen to me. See, ever since Mount Sinai, God has told them, 
If you do what I say, I'm going to bless you beyond your wildest imagination. If you don't do what I say, if you refuse, there's going to be trouble. And this is this day of reckoning. So Ezekiel chapter 9, when you see that setting, and there are some scattered verses here. And again, we won't read the whole extended passage. But in verse 3, it says, Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. (laughs) Again, back at Mount Sinai, when God gave the Israelites the law, and he also explained to them how to make this, this temple. At the time, while they were traveling around, they called it a tabernacle. It was in a, a movable tent that they could strike and move and set back up. And they have this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. You've seen it in Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's this, you know, box. But it was more than just a, a box. God told them that in a very literal sense, that on the, the lid the covering of this box where there are these two sculpted angels with outspread wings that in that space between these outspread wings would be his mercy seat. That he would be, his presence would come and be there. While they're traveling throughout the wilderness, they're led by this pillar of cloud, God in this pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. But when they stop and they set up camp and they get this tabernacle all set up, this pillar would come and rest right there. God has said, I'm not just saying this symbolically. I'm telling you my presence will be right here. And what we're told in Ezekiel now is that that presence is beginning to leave. I can't think of a more tragic thing. In Ezekiel earlier... In his, in his book here, has described these crazy beings, these cherubim that have four faces and, you know, they look like creatures. And, I mean, it's really wild stuff. But here he says that the presence, that God's glory started to move out. And then it moved out from what is now not just a tabernacle, this movable tent, but this permanent building, this structure that in this time was King Solomon's building and had moved out to the threshold. And then in Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 4, it says this, And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with the cloud and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. It sounds very similar to the verse before. Some have suggested it's possible that the meaning of the verse before was that first this glory moved from inside the holy of holies. You know, they had the holy place and then the holy of holies where the ark itself was kept. Then he moved from there sort of to the threshold of the Holy of Holies, but now it clearly seems to indicate that he's moved to the threshold of the temple itself. And the light from this glory filled the whole courtyard. Look, that same chapter, 
chapter 10, down to verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. There are these crazy wheels too, wheels inside of wheels. It's crazy stuff. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate to the house of the Lord. And the glory of the God of Israel was over them. Now this has moved out from just the threshold of the temple out to the gate into the courtyard itself. You see this movement? Westward, uh, eastward, excuse me, away from the temple, away from this mercy seat. Finally, in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 22, it says, Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. This progression ends with God leaving this city entirely. And if you haven't already figured it out, that mountain to the east of the city is what would later become known as the Mount of Olives. You see what's happening here, this incredibly tragic event where they've just gone too far. They have tested God's patience too much. In fact, many of us would say they tested God's patience too much hundreds of years before then. But God's a lot more patient than we are and gracious and abounding in mercy. But here, they've just gone too far. This idolatry is happening in his temple now. And Ezekiel has shown this vision whereby the glory of God himself moves away leaves his house, leaves it desolate. And then, this hundreds of years later, God himself has revisited his house. Jesus, God, the Messiah, has been there. He's been in their midst. He's been right there. And there's such grief that comes out of him as he leaves this temple. You know, know, we maybe have this expectation that there'll be fist shaking and I'll get you, Jerusalem. That's not what it is. It's this grieving Jerusalem. If only you knew how many times I just wanted to gather you under my wings, but you refused. You will not come in. And so as he is literally leaving the temple, again, leaving these courtyards, again, going out the eastern gate of Jerusalem and down through that valley, And up to the Mount of Olives, he says, behold, your house is empty. 
It's left desolate. Something really significant is happening to you today. I'm right here, and you would not hear me. And so here I go again. I'm going to leave my house. And I'm going to leave it to you desolate, empty, uninhabited. And you won't see me there again until I return. Now, what we really love is this extended section. We joked about it in our theology class a couple weeks ago. We haven't yet gone to the, the end times, and we're all really excited about this. the stuff we love talking about, right? And we'll get there. And that's what this next passage is all about. There's a very extended passage in Matthew here about all of these signs, but I, I don't want us to miss what is incredibly significant about God himself leaving after he's been rejected yet again. He knows he's about to suffer intensely. And he says, Jerusalem, this weep over you. You have no idea how many times I just wanted to gather you. But today... Just as happened before, your house is left to you empty, desolate, uninhabited. What do we do with that? I'm thankful today for a couple of things. I mean, I'm thankful for all sorts of things. But you know, in this age in this era, one of the things that we recognize is that we are now God's temple. Hallelujah. Isn't that a blessed truth? Isn't that incredible? I am his temple. There's this thing that happened that when I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, God himself took up residence in me. I'm that place now. And furthermore, I'm promised that he won't ever withdraw that presence from me. Hallelujah. That's wonderful. However, there still can be this real disconnect with the way the temple appears and the reality of what the temple is. You know, again, think back to Jesus explaining to his disciples as they leave. It's like that Instagram photo. It was a total fake. And his disciples say, look at this amazing place. Just look how the sun is just catching it. Just Can you believe how wonderful and beautiful? And Jesus says, it's a farce. It's desolate. I've left it. <laughs> And a time is coming when not one of those beautiful, wonderful stones is going to be left on top of another. Now we are God's temple. And positionally, that doesn't change. But I think experientially and functionally, 
we can do things to that. If you look in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians 4, verse 25, he says, Put away falsehood. Each one of you speak the truth which is with his neighbor, for members one of another. Be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. He's talking here about how God's children ought to behave, about how those members of the body of Christ ought to behave. He's writing to the church, the body of Christ in this city. They're brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, just like you and I are. And he's got these instructions on how that ought to look. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And verse 30 says this then. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now he says a couple things there. For one, there's this idea of sealing this assurance, this permanent seal placed. But he also raises the specter of this possibility of you and I grieving the Holy Spirit, of making the Holy Spirit sad, if you will. That just as on that day, Jesus is heartbroken as he leaves the temple And he's not saying, I'll show you. What he's saying is, I wish you understood how deeply I have desired you to come to me. And you won't do it. And how often do you and I, as the temple, praise God that this temple is never truly left desolate. But what sort of damage do I do to the relationship with my God, by grieving him, by making him sad. There are this list of things here, and some of them are very simple things. You know, sometimes we're, we're told not to be murderers, and we're like, yes, I've got that one so good. I haven't ever murdered anybody. I'm feeling real good about myself. But then we read things like, let no falsehood come out of your mouth, and I think, oh, shoot, <laughs> I think I may have done that one. And Paul writes here in this letter to his brothers and sisters, don't make God sad. He has taken up dwelling in this temple, but it's still possible to grieve him, to make him sad, to break his heart. Don't do that. He just says really simply, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. I think as we see these scenes, this tragedy in Ezekiel of God showing Ezekiel really clearly, I'm leaving my house, I'm leaving it empty. And Jesus then coming and and being there, 
having these conversations right there in the temple and then saying, I'm leaving. I leave your house to you empty and desolate. And while I'm happy that I'll never be left empty or desolate, the reality is I can still grieve him and make him sad. And I don't want to do that. Because you know, when life works best for you and I, when we're in that close communion with our maker, hallelujah, isn't that when it works? Isn't that just that like water on a parched land? When I don't have that, and it's never him that walked away from me, it's me that walked away from him. It's such dryness. I miss it so much. And he misses it far more than I do and says, oh, Paul, Paul, if you only knew how much I desire that we would just be right here, but you're grieving me. (laughs) You're making me sad. And if that's never you, then praise God. If it is, cut it out. (laughs) You know, again, it's all well and good for us to read this history of the nation of Israel and just say, why won't they cut it out? Why won't they quit this idolatry? They brought idols right into the temple? Are you kidding me? How dumb are they? Pretty dumb. Guess how dumb we are sometimes? Pretty dumb. (laughs) Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't sadden him by bringing things into his temple that ought not to be there. Our Father God, will you convict each and every one of us. God, I pray that I'll be convicted of me. Not of my wife or my kids or the people around me, but that you'll convict me with where I may be grieving the Holy Spirit and that you'll be actively doing that for all of us. And that we'll hear that. That as Jesus leveled this charge against Jerusalem as being the city where its messengers were stoned, the prophets were killed. That we won't plug up our ears and refuse to hear your voice when, with regard to us. That we'll hear this today. Father, If there's anyone here who doesn't yet have your holy presence, that you haven't yet taken up residence in them, will you help them to understand that's only because they haven't simply invited you? That there's nothing that needs to be done on their part, nothing needs to be worked for, that Jesus did all of that work already. And he simply says, invite me in. And the God of the universe, I myself will take up residence. You'll be my temple. I'll live there.
in communion with you. God, what an amazing, incredible thing. That doesn't just have importance for after we die. It has importance for today. And so, Father, we pray that you would draw like a mother hen gathering chicks under her wings any who haven't yet received you in your free salvation right now. Thank you for that rich salvation. Thank you for providing it for us. Thank you for doing the work we couldn't possibly do ourselves so that we might be made right with you, have this beautiful friendship and communion with you. And help us to not grieve you with our behavior. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.